0: On Tape Delay from the Barsoomian Blade Bureau in Chicago, Illinois. Dateline, Jasoon. A Panthen Press Production. For the fans of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Pulp Adventure. Here's your host, Elmo.
1: Welcome to show number 11, Burroughs fans. It's going to be a relatively easy one for me to put together because I still have recordings from the Burroughs Bradbury panel discussion in Oak Park, Illinois, way back in May. And today I'm going to bring you two speakers who are longtime members of the Burroughs Bibliophiles, and the first is Jerry Spanraft. Jerry was the host of the 2005 Dum Dum in Oak Park.
2: I was very fortunate that I had uh, two personal contacts with uh, with Ray Bradbury. The first in uh, in the early uh, early 80s, I was attending a, a professional conference in uh, San Francisco, and Bradbury was our uh, keynote speaker. And during the speech, he uh, he did mention Burroughs, the fact that he admired the man, and he had read uh, many of his books. Uh, later that day I was walking through the hotel and I saw him sitting by himself at the, in the coffee shop. So I walked up to him and introduced myself and he invited me to sit down. At which time we talked about uh, a number of things. He and I had a lot in common, we were both collectors. He collected toys, uh, toy trains, toy trucks, and so the And then of course then we got his burrows, and he asked a lot of questions about the Burrow bibliophiles files and you know, what we do and how we do it and, and things like that. And then he made a comment. I'll never forget, and I'll quote it. He said, Edgar Rice Burroughs is the greatest American writer that ever lived, (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's saying a lot, Uh, especially when we got Edgar Allan Poe and and Mark Twain, and here in Oak Park, we had a a fellow by the name of Hemingway. So I did something which now I I wish I had not done. I didn't realize what his reaction would be, but I said to him, "Uh, don't you mean Greatest American science fiction writer. And he looked at me, he glared at me, and said, No! American writer. He was the greatest American writer. Don't let anybody ever tell you differently. Okay? He um, used to say the conversation sort of stopped after that. We, we talked a little bit more, but uh, that was a heck of a thing to say. I mean, showed the man's admiration for Pearl. Six years later, Uh, here in Oak Park, uh, I decided to run for the uh, library board. There were seven of us running for three positions. Uh, I was fortunate enough to to win. Uh, But during the course of the campaign, I was interviewed by the Oak police. And they asked me what my platform was. What would I do for the board? What would I do for the village? And one of the things that I said was that uh, uh, being in Oak Park, I've seen that Oak Park really Promotes and admires uh, Ernest Hemingway and Frank Lloyd Wright. However, Edgar Rice Burroughs, who lived here for 10 years, really didn't have too much going for him here. Now, in the 1975, they did uh, put a plaque up uh, at one of the houses that he owned, uh, and here in the uh, historical society, there were two uh, big poster boards up in the upstairs that had some of his books and a, a signed choreograph. And that was it. There was really nothing about Burroughs in in the village of Park. So I said to the editor, or the person, the reporter that I was interviewing with, uh, one of the things that I'm going to do, or want to do if I'm elected, is I'm going to make sure that Edgar Rice Burroughs gets the due that's owed him, and I'm going to make sure that the library, the Oak Park Public Library, has at least one copy of every single book that that Burroughs wrote. Well, the obies endorsed me, and they ran the story, that, including the quote that I got, I had given them. About two weeks later, a letter to the editor appeared from a, uh, a gentleman, an old park president, who said, "We have to make sure that Jerry Spanner does not get elected." That by putting Edgar Wright books in our library would be absolutely terrible if Burroughs was a racist and Jerry Spanner is obviously a racist too and we don't want any part of him or Burroughs in (coughs) Park. So I decided, well, should I answer this? You get to a mudslinging, especially during the election, that's not good, I was thinking about it. Then I thought, hey, I'm going to write my friend, Ray Bradbury, since he's a much better wordsmith than I am, and he can answer this man. So I, so I sent a copy of the letter to the editor to Bradbury uh, with a note saying, would you please uh, give me some thoughts or perhaps you'd like to answer this gentleman, uh, gentleman in quotes, uh, yourself. <laughs> well, Bradbury sent me back the letter that I wrote, which it was, was we typed it, with big black letter saying, this person is an idiot. <laughs> Don't waste my time or yours in answering him. Burroughs was a fiction writer and he wrote according to the time in which he lived. That was it. So I did not answer him, uh, which he didn't have, but uh, <coughs> Bradbury is quite an interesting person. Uh, and, uh, I wish you'd all had a chance to meet him at uh, or listen to him in person because he has uh, some great ideas and, uh, uh, and of course and he loves Burroughs, which a number of here in the room uh, also do so. That's my my story
1: about Rad Area The next bibliophile to speak at the panel discussion was my good friend Joan J. the V Bledig.
0: I'd like to tell you a story about one of my rereadings of Tarzan of the Apes by Andrew Rice Burroughs back in the late 1960s. It had been a number of years since I had reread the tale. I chose an early Valentine paperback edition because it was easier to carry back and forth from work on public transportation. I had read very few of the paperback editions of the body of Burroughs' works, because there were only six of his seventy at the time published novels I did not own, because I had never been lucky enough to find them in their original hardbound editions. My most read and reread copy of Tarsus of the Apes was an ale burnt hardback printed from the same plates that was used to print the first edition by A.C. McClurg. Three quarters of the way through, I realized something about the story was bothering me. It just didn't seem quite right. I thought about it for a while. Then I realized what the problem was. Little things here and there were. Well, missing or maybe not missing, but certainly not quite as I thought I remembered them. I dug out my trusty Burt reprint and started to compare it to the Valentine paperback. Would it read as I remembered? Flipping the pages, checking a line here, a phrase there, I was horrified to discover someone had indeed tampered with the paperback text. I had remembered correctly. I didn't recall Burroughs using the word damn. But here Snipes, a sailor of questionable repute, is referred to as, you damned shrimp. Where did that come from? In a paragraph or two later, Snipes himself retorts, not by a damn sight. These weren't ERB's words. And Esmeralda, what has happened to Jane's colored mane, Esmeralda? <coughs> Why, she's no longer speaking in the vernacular of her time. Not only has she learned a bit of grammar since 1912, but she's obviously had a speech coach working with her, too. Alas, she must have unsuccessfully asked for a bigger salary after going to the speech coach because some of her lines have disappeared completely. And those villainous sailors? They must have attended the same speech classes as morality did. Some idiot had come along with his or her red pen, changing a word here and a word there, Deleting some, adding others, sometimes leaving out an entire phrase or sentence or whole paragraph for no reason I could discern. Did the edits make a difference to the story? Perhaps, perhaps not. Did they improve the story? Perhaps, perhaps not. But censoring Esmeralda's dialogue changed the flavor of the story for me. This book wasn't written in 1962. It was written 50 years earlier. It is a product of its time. It should be left as it is and read as it is. I vowed that day I would never, and I emphasize never, purchase another Valentine Burroughs paperback. My money was not going to support any publisher who had such disrespect for my favorite author's words. Needless to say, being a diehard collector, I did revise that vow. I have bought many Valentine paperbacks since then, but because they were reissued with new cover art and from used book dealers. Never again did I buy one, where the money went directly (coughs) into Ballantype coffers. Ultimately, Ray Bradbury gives the reader this same message in his novel Fahrenheit 451, and especially in his coda to the 50th anniversary edition. By the way, I had to check the book out of the library to reread it. After being packed up in a box for 25 years, I had sold my two copies last fall. Bradbury's message is twofold. First, censorship is unacceptable, and second, (coughs) changing an author's published words by anyone for any reason is just as unacceptable. The author's words are his alone and should not be subject to alteration by anyone. The afterword in the anniversary edition tells us that the author, however, is perfectly within his right to edit his own words. I agree. Perhaps Burroughs would have edited Tarzan of the Apes for a more modern audience had he been alive in 1962. I personally hope that he would not have (coughs) felt the need to do so. In Fahrenheit 451 society, reading is bad. It's bad because it makes people unhappy. And unhappy people have powerful emotions. And powerful emotions are the agents of trouble. So if people don't read, they won't be unhappy, they won't be emotional, and they won't cause any trouble. So, how do you keep a society from reading? Why, the easiest way, of course, is to burn all the books. Valentine tinkered with ERB's text. Esmeralda's emotions are no longer so bold. Her charming, though I will grant, stereotypical dialogue, is now bland or edited into oblivion. Fahrenheit 451 Society has become like this, boulderized text in Tarzan of the Apes, unoriginal and boring, mundane and without emotion. Montag's boss, Beattie, has obviously read a book or two before he's burned them, or at least he's read enough cover blurbs to sound knowledgeable. We learn this in his diatribe at the ailing Montag. When Beattie comes to Montag's house to investigate his absence from work, he tells Montag, and we readers, of course, I've had to read a few in my time to know what I was about, and the books say nothing, nothing you can teach or believe. You could almost believe that Beattie is really a secret reader, and perhaps the reason he's trying so hard to get Montag to agree to reading a book is actually a positive one. I wanted Beattie to be Montag's ally. I wanted him to reveal himself to be a reader. I wanted him to be Montag's friend. I wanted him to share the same secret. Alas, this was not to be. I did look at Beattie optimistically, held on to hope for him, until he drove the salamander to Montag's house. Fahrenheit 451 Society is against the idea that anyone should or could have an idea. It wants conformity. Having an idea leads to discontent, which must be avoided at all costs. When a member of this society's subconscious can no longer deal with his or her dull existence, he or she overdoses on tranquilizers, liberally supplied to aid in the suppression of individuality and imagination. And what a common occurrence this is. Montag realizes this when he calls the emergency hospital to get help for his overdosed unconscious wife. Instead of an M.D., he gets two guys and two machines, one to pump the stomach and one to clean the blood. Got to clean them out both ways, says one of the men. When Montag asks why an M.D. wasn't sent, he's told, hell, we get these cases 9 or 10 a night. We got to go, just get another call. Bradbury's book is not a total downer, however. He does give us some hope. The old professor Faber tells us what three things missing from the Fahrenheit 451 world could be gained from books. One, quality of information. And I quote here, Good writers touch life often. Mediocre ones run a quick hand over her. Bad ones rape her and leave her for the flies. But good, bad, mediocre, it's information two, leisure to digest this information, and three, the right to carry out actions based on what is learned from the interaction of the first two. Montag manages to escape the rigid strictures of Fahrenheit 451 society. He finds others who, like he does now, revel in the wonder and delight of a book, perhaps even Tarzan of the Apes, and what worlds a book opens for its readers. Thank you.
1: And that's it for show number 11. I'll talk to you in two weeks. This is Elmo from the Barsoomian Blade Bureau in Chicago, signing off.